Today is Wednesday, March the 8th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcast of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Amazon Ring limits more of its basic security features to its subscription plan. Amazon's Ring Smart Home Division will start charging users for more features that had been available to all customers at no extra cost. Starting on March the 29th, you'll need to be on a Ring Protect plan to use home and away modes for the company's cameras and video doorbells. This feature enables users to switch live view and recording on or off in the Ring app whether they're away or at home. Those who buy a Ring Alarm system on or after March the 29th will need to pay extra to access several freshly pay-war features too. You'll need a subscription to arm or disarm it from the Ring app or an Alexa-enabled device. Otherwise, you'll only be able to do so from the Ring keypad. Other features such as real-time app and email notifications and the ability to connect your cameras and doorbell to the system are moving behind the subscription. Those without a Protect membership will also be limited to 24 hours of alarm event history rather than 60 days. These changes don't apply to those who already own a Ring Alarm system. Ring notes on a support page that those who buy a Ring Alarm before March 29th but don't activate it until on or after that day will still have access to these features without a paid subscription for the expected life of the device. Ring Protect plans start at $4 per month or $40 per year after prices went up last summer. The newly paywalled features will all be available on the basic tier as it was pointed out. In any case, those who buy a Ring Alarm after the end of March will have to subscribe to access some basic features. Not getting a notification when you're away from home and the system is triggered, for instance, kind of defeats the purpose of having a smart alarm set up. Windows 7 users are finally abandoning ship. Do you think they're going for Windows 11? Uh Uh-uh. Windows 10 appears to be their destination. Windows 7 is finally being abandoned if new stats are anything to go by, with its user base practically cut in half following support for the operating system being completely discontinued. And of course, the end of life being reached for Windows 8.1, which similarly saw its user numbers cut in half. This is according to StatCounter's figures for February, which show that Windows 7 market share among all Windows versions globally has dropped from 9.55% to 5.39%. It's a huge slide. Windows 8.1 similarly halved from 2.28 to 1.15%. The timing is notable. Seeing as Windows 8.1 just went out of support in January 
of this year, and while Windows 7 became officially unsupported in January 2020, since then it has had a period of extended security updates, and that just expired in January 2023. As Windows 8.1 isn't getting an extended support updates program, effectively both Windows 7 and 8 and 8.1 are finally and completely on the scrap heap regarding security updates, so it's no longer safe to run them, and with February figures, we're seeing the results of that quite clearly indeed. Where are these people migrating to? It looks like mainly Windows 10, which received a 4.39% uptick for February to hit a 73.25% market share. The ranks of Windows 11 users were also boasted somewhat to the tune of, uh, well, over 1%, with that operating system now at 19.13% of overall share. But Windows 10 was clearly the big gainer here. The analysis is that you could say that this was predictably enough, given that all support and security updates are now out of the window. Sorry for that pun. For both of these outdated Microsoft operating systems. But not really. Folks are prone to stay with favorite operating systems even past its security sell-by date, and if ever there was a testament to that, it's Windows XP. If you recall, Windows XP still held a 10% market share two years after it ran out of support, and that was 15 years after the operating system first arrived. Indeed, there were still XP uses in evidence, a small but meaningful amount, just over a half a cent when it turned 20 years old. Can you believe this is why Windows XP became known as the operating system that refused to die? It doesn't look like Windows 7 will be pulling similar levels of longevity given this February plunge, although we do expect that erosion of its share will slow down considerably after the initial defection has taken place. Of course, bear in mind that this is just one set of figures on desktop operating systems, so we mustn't get too carried away with drawing conclusions. Though this is such a strong indication, you'd be hard-pressed not to read something substantial into it. Secret Service, that's ICE, repeatedly broke the law over fake cell tower spying. The U.S. Secret Service and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, agencies have failed to follow the law and official policy regarding the use of cell phone simulators, according to a government audit. Cell site simulators, CSS, also known as stingrays or IMSI catchers, are devices that serve as decoy cell towers. They're used by law enforcement, intelligence services, and others to intercept metadata or communications and triangulate a phone's location. Essentially, a handset connects to the nearby tower. Think it belongs to a telco? But in fact, it's a temporary mask set up by the feds to snoop on devices within range. For years, these devices have elicited criticism from civil rights groups and legislators who argue that they violate Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable search and seizure. The government insists it will only use this type of kit in line with existing rules and restrictions. But it appears that is not the case. The Department of Homeland Security, that's DHS, 
Office of the Inspector General, OIG, looked at CSS deployment by the Secret Service and ICE and found Secret Service and ICE, HSI, that's Homeland Security Investigations, did not always adhere to federal statute and CSS policies when using CSS during investigations involving exigent circumstances. The OIG audit report also found that ICE, HSI, did not adhere to department policy policies and the applicable federal privacy statute when using CSS. The audit was originally undertaken to look at how the agencies adhered to policies on cell phone surveillance and commercial location sharing databases. But DHS OIG now is dealing with those two separately. The phone surveillance report offers six recommendations to help the agencies comply with their legal and policy obligations. But annoyingly, it redacts statistical data about the number of investigations utilizing CSS devices in 2020 and 2021. Government investigators are supposed to get a court order at least to use a pen register. That's devices that record incoming and outgoing phone numbers when calls are made. Except under exigent circumstances, the so-called ticking time bomb scenario, but as the OIG report notes, the two organizations often fail to do that. The fact that government agencies are using these devices without the utmost consideration for the privacy and rights of individuals around them is alarming, but not surprising, said EFF policy analyst Matthew Guariglia in a blog post The federal government, and in particular agencies like HSI and ICE, have a dubious and troubling relationship with overbroad collection of private data on individuals. Guariglia argues the OIG should release the statistical data so that the public can better understand how often CSS devices play a role in investigations. In October 2015, Alejandra Mayorkas then Deputy Secretary of DHS and currently Secretary of DHS, issued a policy memorandum stating that the department must use cell site simulators in a manner that is consistent with the requirements and protections of the Constitution, including the Fourth Amendment, and applicable statutory authorities, including the Penn Register Statute. By 2017, the Secret Service and ICE had each formulated policies incorporating the DHS directive. The Department of Justice says that while it has in the past obtained authorization to use a cell site simulator by seeking an order pursuant to the Penn Register statute, which does not require a probable cause warrant as a matter of policy, law enforcement agency must now obtain a search warrant supported by probable cause and issued pursuant to Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure or the applicable state equivalent. But there are various exceptions when a warrant is not required and CSS deployment is governed by the rules for pen registers. Exceptions include the need to protect human life or avert serious injury, the prevention of imminent destruction of evidence, the hot pursuit of a fleeing felon, or the prevention of escape by a suspect or convicted fugitive from justice. And there's also an exception when the law doesn't require a warrant 
and obtaining one would be impractical. Given this legal inconsistency, it's not always obvious whether CSS deployment was done lawfully. In 2017, decision in Prince Jones v. U.S., an appeals court found the government violated the Fourth Amendment when it deployed the cell site stimulator against plaintiff Prince Jones without first obtaining a warrant based on probable cause. And the following year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in U.S. v. Carpenter that the warrantless search and seizure of cell site data violated the Fourth Amendment. Legislators recently have tried to make CSS usage clearer. In 2021, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, who's a Democrat from Oregon, and a bipartisan group of other lawmakers introduced a bill, the Cell Site Simulator Warrant Act, requiring the government to obtain a warrant to deploy a CSS device. Current, federal, state, and local policies regulating stingrays are confusing and inconsistent, opening the door to abuse and unconstrained invasive surveillance by law enforcement. The Project on Government Oversight said in support of the bill. The bill, however, never made it out of committee. Advanced Chip Fab Blueprints Stolen at ASML ASML, for those who don't know, is headquartered in the Netherlands and makes the highly specialized equipment used by Intel, Taiwan Semiconductor, and others to fabricate silicon chips in their own fabs. A former ASML worker accused of stealing trade secrets for advanced chip-making equipment from his employer is now suspected of spying for the Chinese government. Citing sources familiar with an internal ASML probe into the alleged theft, Bloomberg reports the employee who is apparently based in China had potential ties to a Beijing-backed spy ring and may have been stealing that data on its behalf. The blueprint theft, ASML's second in less than a year, comes as the United States is pressuring its allies to starve out China's domestic chip-making efforts. This campaign includes barring the export of lithography machines built by ASML and others that are used by foundries, such as Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung Electronics, to produce advanced semiconductors used in smartphones, laptops, and servers. ASML agreed last year not to export extreme ultraviolet lithography, that's EUV machines, to China. These machines are essential to producing chips using 10 nanometers process nodes and smaller. More recently, the Dutch government said it would take steps to cut off China from ASML's older deep ultraviolet lithography DUV machines. While DUV equipment is made by a variety of supplies, including Canon and Nikon, ASML remains the sole supplier of EUV machines. This makes the intellectual property necessary to build EUV hardware, an incredibly valuable commodity for a country like China, which lags behind Taiwan and Korea foundries. The efforts have forced Chinese chipmakers and government officials to reevaluate the strategies with the country's Academy of Science releasing a blueprint for how to circumvent U.S. export controls, and while the report emphasizes original research, the Middle Kingdom clearly isn't above a little espionage. As likely targets go, 
ASML has proven particularly leaky. Earlier this month, it disclosed in an annual report that it had suffered an unauthorized misappropriation of data related to proprietary technology by an employee based in China. Bloomberg reports that while ASML hasn't found a direct link between the employee and the Chinese government, the investigation is ongoing. The security breach is also being investigated by U.S. authorities as the stolen data is subject to U.S. export controls. This would imply the stolen IP may be related to the manufacture of EUV equipment. That would certainly help to advance Chinese foundries, which have largely been stuck at 14 nanometers process nodes. Although some reports indicate that SMIC, which is a Chinese company, has recently gained the ability to produce 7 nanometer node chips. Making matters worse, this isn't the first time ASML IP has found its way into the hands of the Chinese government. Last year, ASML accused China's Dongfang Jingyuan Electron of stealing trade secrets. The company was founded by a former ASML employee and, as Bloomberg reports, is now wanted in the state of California on charges of intellectual property theft. The employee was accused of founding companies in the United States and China with the intent of funneling data back to the CCP. Comcast plans to fight cord kiting in 2023. Comcast is facing a tough 2023 when it comes to its traditional TV business. In Comcast's 2022 fourth quarter earnings report that was released, the company reported a 440,000 video customer loss. Hopes that internet would offset TV losses ended when they just added 4,000 broadband customers for the quarter. Now Comcast has a plan to fight cord cutting in 2023 and come out on top. Comcast seems to have a three-part plan for 2023. First, take on Roku. The second is to make its internet service more profitable. And lastly, to grow its streaming services. Comcast wants to become Roku. Comcast has for years made a huge amount of profit from its set-top boxes. Now Comcast wants to keep making money off of hardware, this time by selling a streaming player similar to what Roku does and according to Comcast sometime in 2023. It plans to start selling its new version of its Flex streaming player in Walmart stores. The Zumo box will be a rebranded version of their Comcast Flex streaming player running their X1 OS. And Zumo is likely a name you may know as it is also the name of the free ad-supporting streaming services Comcast purchased back in 2020. Comcast also plans to roll out a new version of its X1 OS to its streaming players and cable boxes this year. The hope is this upgraded X1 interface will get people to switch from Roku to Comcast. No word on pricing yet, but Comcast has confirmed they do plan to launch Zumo Box sometime in 2023 at Walmart stores. Comcast has long argued that losses in TV can be offset in part by the internet. Recently, though, subscriber growth was lower than expected with just 4,000 new customers added in the fourth quarter of 2022, and many are saying Verizon and T-Mobile Home Internet is 
taking a bite out of Comcast's business. To help improve internet profitability and grow a user base, Comcast has a few plans in the works for 2023. First, Comcast plans to offer a new modem that will offer a battery backup and cellular backup. This modem will target customers who need to stay online no matter what. This device could attract customers who work from home and need to make sure they don't go offline. Look for Comcast to charge extra for this new modem with cellular backup option to drive up revenue. Comcast plans to offer 10G internet, and it's supposed to be far faster than any home internet it currently offers. This 10G service will, of course, come with a higher price tag. By offering new options, all with new price tags, Comcast seems to hope it can drive up revenue on its internet business. Comcast has been making a lot of movies with streaming. Recently, Peacock stopped offering a free option for new subscribers. It's also learned that this summer, Xfinity customers who get Peacock for free will lose access to it and need to pay up if they want to maintain access to Peacock. Comcast is also hoping that putting sports on Peacock will help the service grow. Recently, they struck deals with the Big Ten to bring some of its game to Peacock. There is also talk that Comcast plans to bid on NBA games with the hope that a few may end up on Peacock. Comcast plans don't stop there a few years ago. They bought the free streaming service Zumo and renamed it Zumo Play. Slowly, this service is becoming the backbone of their ad push. Comcast even plans to build it further into their X1 experience, giving users of its set-top boxes the ability to easily access a large collection of ad-supported movies and TV shows. It seems that Comcast has two plans for streaming. First, try and find content that would drive subscribers to Peacock. Second, to build its ad-supported service up to help grow its ad revenue. The question now is, will this strategy work? Beyond fighting cord-cutting, Comcast is also looking to devise its business. Recently, Comcast has been pushing hard to grow its mobile business and get customers to switch over to its wireless service. Comcast wireless push has to now be seen as one of the main focuses of Comcast and someday, maybe even in its main push alongside its internet business, replacing its focus on traditional TV services. Intel's February 2023 driver updates released for Windows 11 and Windows 10. Intel has been rolling February 2023 driver updates for Windows 11 and 10 with several bug fixes. Currently, only the Bluetooth driver is available, but graphics and Wi-Fi drivers should follow soon. So, what's new in Intel's February 2023 update? Intel's latest drivers should boost Bluetooth performance on Windows 10 and 11. The chipmaker said it made several changes to improve Wi-Fi and Bluetooth compatibility when they attempt to connect to Wi-Fi 4, which is 802.11n. A new change should improve the reliability of Bluetooth connections between PC and phone, which will be noticeable if you use PhoneLink. For those unaware, several features of Microsoft's PhoneLink, previously known as Your Phone, rely on PC's wireless capabilities such as Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. In addition to quality improvements, 
There are several important bug fixes, including a fix for an issue where using Bluetooth and Wi-Fi simultaneously could trigger a blue screen of death error and force a system reboot. This occurs in rare cases, but several reports in the feedback hub highlight the problem. Last but not least, Intel Wireless Bluetooth 22.200.0 driver includes functional updates and security improvements. Of course, Intel isn't shipping new features with the February 2023 update, and most users won't notice any changes after applying the patch. Delaying the update for a few days is generally a good idea. You should download the new drivers only if you are genuinely in need of these bug fixes or you run into trouble with existing drivers. For those unaware, Intel driver updates also ship via Windows Update. If the OEM supports your device, you'll get this particular driver update in the future. However, if you can't wait, or the OEM has no plans to publish drivers for your device, you can always use Intel's Driver and Support Assistant tool. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking about you, the workplace, technology, and how a lot of this all fits in together. Now, I, I want you to think about your position, your job, whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, there are people along the way, they feel like they get stuck in a job. They, they, they. They go and they dread waking up every morning and going to work. They despise it. And they get into this they get into this cycle where they they eventually decide we've got to break out of this. We've got to we've got to just stop and we have to get a new job. And then what happens is they they realize okay, I'm not going to focus on one company or one job. I'm just going to apply to a bunch of stuff. And they've applied a new term to this. And this is very similar to the quiet quitting term that you may have heard about and uh, all of these other terms that keep popping up. This new one is called rage applying because you are going after every single job posting that even looks remotely like they'll hire you. And this is this is an idea that has come through. Uh, a lot of the younger crowd, and they've they're going on out and they're applying to uh, just whatever they can, rather than out of genuine interest or qualifications, they are going for whatever they can get outside of what they're doing right now. Now, it's called rage applying, but I don't like that term. I don't like it because. We're, we're applying this idea of rage to people who are seeking to improve their standard of living. They're seeking to improve their income. They're seeking to get away from a job which they don't like. So it's, it, it, it's, I, I, I hesitate to use the idea of rage. You know, I mean, we could we could say that I recently went through a similar situation. Uh, we'll, we'll call it uh, we'll call it uh, 6 months ago. And I I left the job that I was at and uh, went to a different company. I wasn't truly rage applying, 
But I will tell you that I I enabled my uh, my LinkedIn account and said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say. And a lot of people came forward. Uh, I mean, we don't say that they were rage searching for a, a new employee. But so I, I couldn't say that I was rage applying, but I, I did make myself available. Now, we do have to think about part of this equation. It, it's it, this rage applying seems to point to this. This term seems to point to the employee and them having a bad attitude about their job. But frequently, the reason why people leave their previous job has to do with things like uh, poor working environment, uh, salaries that aren't competitive, uh, maybe benefits, uh, maybe you know, just a matter of the the employee is not feeling like they're appreciated. And you know, I, I will tell you that where I'm at right now, I feel like I mean, I felt like I was appreciated at the previous position in a number of different areas. There was one area which uh, which had kind of stalled and. Uh, I, I was looking to see what was available out there, and it just turned out that there was a lot available. Look, <sighs> companies can do a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, again, I'm well appreciated right now where I'm at. But whether we're talking about making sure that you're keeping pace with competitive salaries, or training programs, or finding ways to to ensure that there's a career development going on within the company is something that all the way along, yes, it benefits the employees, but it actually benefits the company. There's a very interesting term, that, or not a term, but idea that has existed for a long time. It's a matter of it costs the company roughly an additional year of salary just to bring on board a new employee. And that will vary at different times. And it's hard to exactly quantify it. You have the issues of bringing somebody up to speed as far as the technology within the company, the company culture, and all of the different industrial knowledge uh, some of the different uh, that, that just comes along with that. Think of all of the different things that you know about where you're working at. And the new guy, you've got to train them on all of these. This is the way we do things here. Oh, this particular way of doing things is how we approach it here versus that way that you, you're used to. I mean, you bring along any employee brings along a lot of knowledge and a lot of different uh, uh, different benefits to the position but you still have to mold them into a good employee for the company. And that that takes a lot of energy to go on out, to find a new employee, to bring them up to speed. And it's not just one person who's performing the training. There's all kinds of different areas. So it's good to have employees that stick around for a long time. I, I shudder to think of places like Amazon. Where they're not training any culture, they go here. Here's a bunch of packages, and go and deliver these. Here's, you know, here you've got to move these boxes here, there, wherever, and their turnover is huge. A matter of every position turns over within ten months, and that's that's kind of a scary thought. If we all shift company companies shift jobs uh, constantly like that out of frustration or desperation or burnout or whatever it is, then 
companies will never have a chance to develop a strong and dedicated workforce. And that actually is what you're going to find is how you're going to get ahead if you're a company. And you finding it as an employee, a company that invests in you like that, that's priceless as well. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Why the floppy disk just won't die? A surprising number of industries still use floppy diskettes, but the supply is finally running out. There's still a current demand for floppy diskettes, particularly among industrial users who rely on them to transfer and store data. These include industrial operations such as manufacturing and engineering, as well as archiving and data storage. Additionally, some users prefer to use floppy diskettes for archiving or for storing data that is not easily accessible via the internet or other digital sources. Back when floppy diskettes were still in mass production and were particularly popular in Japan, they were used for official government procedures until last year. Even though the last major manufacturer of floppy diskettes stopped making them in 2010, the machines that rely on them for embroidery machines to plastic molding, medical equipment to aircraft, live on, relying on the dwindling supply of diskettes that will one day run out. Most of the companies still using floppy diskettes are small businesses or companies running very tight margins who either simply never got around to upgrading their equipment or found it too expensive to do so. There is today no computer sold with built-in floppy disk drives left, but external USB floppy drives are still available. Nowadays, it's very hard to obtain floppy diskettes. Fewer than 20 Boeing 747-200s remain in service worldwide, and only in cargo and military configurations. The U.S. Air Force operates six, two of them as Air Force One, It's unclear whether they still use floppy diskettes, but the U.S. military employed the even older 8-inch floppy diskettes in its nuclear arsenal until 2019. Several other types of commercial aircrafts also use floppy diskettes, including newer variants of the 747 and the 767, older Airbus A320s, and some business jets such as Gulfstream's built until the 1990s. It is possible to upgrade from floppy diskettes to USB sticks, SD cards, or even wireless transfer, but doing so could cost thousands of dollars and mean making a change to do something that, while archaic, is known to work. There are floppy-to-USB emulator units available replacing the floppy disk unit. These disk drives cost around $275 each. Replacing the floppy drive with a simple connection to a USB port and are custom made by a handful of companies. The floppy disk may never truly die out. There are people in the world who are still busy finding and fixing up and maintaining phonograph players from 1910, so it's really hard for me to believe that the floppy diskette is just going to utterly disappear. The lifespan of some of the industrial machines that rely on floppy disks can be 30 to 40 years, and many are only 20 years old, says Tom Persky, who runs FloppyDisk.com, a site that specializes in sourcing 
and selling floppy diskettes in several formats. Persky sells about 1,000 diskettes a day, mostly three and a half inch ones, many brand new from a stock of hundreds of thousands in a California warehouse. He says that 20 to 25 years ago, he could buy a container of disc for as little as seven cents each. Today, he sells the most common type, the three and a half inch for $1 a piece. Supply constraints normally results in an increase in prices, but as this pattern progresses, the supply itself will become so constrained that the economics will force more and more people to upgrade or replace the equipment, making the market collapse in on itself. At least one type of floppy disk, the ancient 8-inch introduced by IBM, seems on the verge of extinction. There aren't any left, and we sell the ones we have for $5 each in boxes of 10, Persky says. As for the 3.5-inch floppy, he can't say how many more discs are out there. There is a worldwide inventory of discs that were manufactured 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, he said. The inventory is fixed. We're just blowing through it day by day. I really have no idea how big it is. It's probably unbelievably huge but dispersed. There isn't anybody with a half a million discs, but there are half a million people with a 10-pack. If you're still using a floppy disk drive or dependent on floppy diskettes, it's time for a change. As remote work persists, cities struggle to adapt. As the workforce adapts to the remote work future, millions of people across the country are still not going into the office five days a week. In January, 41% of Americans were working from home for some or all of the week. Fewer people commuting into the office means fewer people spending on lunches and happy hours or stopping by retailers in downtown business districts. It also means less property and sales tax revenue that cities depend on to fund important programs like schools and public transit. The remote work shift is costing big cities a major source of income. The new realities are likely to force cities and states to shift their emphasis from supporting commuter transit and dense housing around it to promoting shared workspaces, broadband and availability, and more competitive tax rates as they contend for workers who can live anywhere. A recent analysis found that the shift to working from home cost Manhattan over $12 billion a year. This concern has caused major cities into a protracted downward spiral. The decline of Rust Belt cities such as Detroit and Pittsburgh in the 1970s when they failed to pivot in the face of shuttering manufacturing plants is an example. Those cities took decades to recover from the downward spiral as unemployment increased, local rents declined, poverty rates increased, and the tax base shrank. Cities have been complacent about their ability to attract residents. Places like New York and San Francisco did not innovate how they kept streets safe or how they provided public education or transportation, and they didn't make it easy or cheap to live there either. The shift to remote work also is depressing commercial property values, reducing property tax revenues for cities. Cities are doing their best to bring people back to the office to combat revenue hits. As working from home encourages more office workers to live in small cities, service workers in big cities might lose their jobs if their employers are dependent on office workers who commute into downtowns, according to a Princeton University study. 
before 2020, home prices in these cities soared as they built very little housing. Zoning regulations by politicians and residents limited developers' ability to build housing and absorb soaring demand. The Zillow's Home Price Index suggests prices for home in San Francisco grew by 106% from February 2010 to February 2020 and from 631,000 to 1.3 million, while the National Index increased by only 50% from 157,000 to 234,000. The same housing issues have also hit New York. According to the data compilation company RentData.org, New York rents have increased by 103% for one-bedrooms and by 81% for two-bedrooms since 2010. By not tackling this housing problem, these cities were failing the needs of the middle class, depriving them of the quality of services and housing that their families needed to thrive. As more people shift to remote work and shop around for a place to live, the underinvestment and poor management in America's large cities has, well, they've come due. Workers are moving further from the expensive urban core. These cities will face major budget problems. Fears about crime detract both tourists and new residents from coming to the cities. Researchers found that increases in violent and property crimes were correlated with city residents migrating to the suburbs. Instead of concentrating on building dense housing near commuter transportation, as cities recently have done, many will need to shift their focus to broadband access and more spread out housing. They also need to plan for public remote work sites. Studies show remote workers want the social interaction and the break from household distraction that such centers can provide. For cities with older decaying commercial buildings, the cost of residential conversion may be very high. Additionally, sweeping changes to zoning or property use regulations take a long time to work out with local politicians and other community groups, which make most urban plans extremely difficult to implement. But overall, the move to remote work can help these places become stronger. It may not always be easy, but by catering to people who truly want to live there with improved affordability and quality of life, cities can usher in a new urban boom. The cities facing troubles in 2023 have several advantages that the rusted-out manufacturing centers like Detroit and Akron, Ohio, did not have in the 1970s. They attract domestic and international tourists because of their famous sites and cultural attractions. The city's populations are generally highly educated, and local top-notch universities still attract young people seeking to make their name, learn, and network. And these cities aren't reliant on a single industry, making them more resilient to abrupt changes. The work-from-home shift can make major cities like San Francisco, New York, and other stronger cities by infrastructure investments to make these cities become more affordable and younger. Now American cities are being forced to adapt to the work-from-home revolution. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. 
Marty Winston joins me now. And speaking of uh, speaking of repairing, fix, <laughs> fixing people's problems, you had a problem. You had mentioned um, that during Christmas Eve, Eve. Yes, the, during the bomb blizzard, the Honeywell thermostat, uh, all of that. Yeah. Now, this isn't just a thermostat. This is a whole controller that handles the heating, the air conditioning, the humidifier, the dehumidifier, and the uh, energy air circulation uh, blower. Okay. So all of that is through one thing. It also goes online. I get energy use reports from it. it mm -hmm. It's in, it's an advanced and it connects wirelessly to the thermostat and wirelessly to an additional indoor sensor for upstairs temperature. It's a really cool system until you have a bomb blizzard. Yes. So that's where it all fell apart. Uh, but you you told me recently when you were talking about it that you had something interesting and in how you had to fix this. Yeah, uh, it, <laughs> it a it reboot was. apparently didn't just re resolve this, did it? No, it, it it didn't. And there's there's a board that lives outside the main furnace controller. The main furnace controller interface is the standard interface. Okay, and. You may not remember your dad or granddad, Will, the old circular Honeywell thermostat in the home with a coil spring, a bimetal spring. Oh, yeah. I, I remember those. Switch, yeah, yeah, the mercury right? switches. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, that was a three-wire device. And two of the wires were uh, power in common. Mm -hmm. And the third one was the trigger from the switch that says, turn on the furnace. Yeah, yeah. So I looked up the old color codes, and we're talking about uh, red and black and white. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's it's so much like Duotone. <laughs> <laughs> and if you remember Duotone, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all these references just changed my name to Smithsonian. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I looked that up, and I took a look at the board. Mm -hmm. And the board wasn't feeding the thermostat. The power line to the thermostat, which is just a power line because it, it's cordless at that point, mm -hmm. wasn't getting anything. My okay. voltmeter, no, kaput, nothing there. So I looked at it and I saw that that line connected to an almost identical connection that went into the furnace. Mm -hmm. And I found code W, the white wire mm -hmm. that would turn the thermos, uh, well, act like the thermostat switch and turn the furnace on. Right. So I thought, okay, which one do I short? And I've looked that up. Uh, now, we both have Radio Shack in our history. Uh, just a, a little bit of, yes, just a little, yes, a lot of it. All right, fine. Remember those color-coded jumper cables with the tiny alligator clips at both ends? Yeah, yeah. I, I dug one out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I made it my bimetal spring mercury switch connection and okay. used that to turn the furnace on and it worked. Nice. nice. Not only right. did that work, but it managed to reboot the board and the board has been working ever since. Okay. You, you gave it a little kickstart. It's just like, uh, yeah. you know, like, uh, yeah. Kind of like, kind of like when the doctor goes on up and you know the the, the heart attack patient's on the bed and he goes, rubs the paddles together and goes clear. <laughs> you got to be inventive. And yeah. in fact, you know, I, I talked to you about the Narwhal Frio uh, vacuum and mopping robot we had. Yeah, yeah. Now, th these things are not inexpensive. You just bought your wife a, a Roomba or something, right? So you know these yeah, things are yeah, not inexpensive. Yeah. yeah. 
And still, they only work on one floor of the house. Yes. Although it was very interesting. My wife sent sent me a picture of this a little alert, and she sent me a picture of the Roomba. It thought it was at the top of a cliff. It was at the top <laughs> of the stairs. Uh, but that's how it, re- how it responded. Oh, my. Well, <laughs> it, it, it occurs to me that by next CES, we're so likely to see mm-hmm. one of these combination base station robot mechanisms mm-hmm. that also involves an indoor compatible drone to carry the whole vacuum mop unit up to the next floor when it's time to clean it. Oh, I love that idea. Oh, I can imagine that. Uh, you, you, you get your DJI or Parrot or whoever drone just yeah. lifting right. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blowing dust all over. But hey, you know, I mean, that's it, it'll vacuum it up. I, well, I, they, 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 we don't know. I mean, it, 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 they work cooperatively. <laughs> Turn the propeller upside down. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, the, I have to remember to put more plain water into the filler and dump the old mop water out. But that's like every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And and because the mopping is so effective, there's almost nothing that gathers in the vacuuming. Oh, nice. Okay. In fact, I was outside. It was mucky. It was mushy. And I had my boots on and I walked into the kitchen. I saw a trail of muddy tracks behind me. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, no. And my wife said, let the robot do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the Jetsons. minutes later, it was clean as a whistle. <laughs> it's the Jetsons. You get you know, Rosie the robot just zipping along behind, cleaning it all up. Yeah, I can't imagine how many people still think you're a human being. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Something to remember for next Christmas. Yeah, but those are things that I'm not going to put into it until we get outdoors. I also wanted to make sure that the lowest level not have anything I have to bend down for. So it's having those plastic cases like the Dremels come in. Sure. It's, you know, trying to pretend that the guy who's going to be using it is old. (laughs) As for now, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. TCF, which is the Trenton Computer Festival, is back again with an in-personal festival and streaming talks available online. Enjoy an exciting day of digital technology-related talks, workshops, exhibits, and vendor sales and demonstrations. There are 11 separate tracks, including a full day devoted to electric vehicle, that's EV technology. It all takes place on the College of New Jersey campus on Saturday, March the 18th. The theme this year is EVs. Our keynote speaker is Lee Goldberg, author of Green Electronics and a contributing editor of Electronics Design Magazine. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association has arranged for an EV car show with the opportunity to test drive EVs. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association is partnering with the Trenton Computer Festival by bringing dozens of different electric vehicle models on Saturday, March 18th, that's 2023, at the College of New Jersey. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle is one of about 100 chapters of the National EVA, a grassroots organization with a mission 
to accelerate the adoption of EVs by education and demonstration. They will also be joined by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, Bureau of Mobile Sources that will be offering rides and drives through local dealers. For more information on TCF and to register, please visit the following website, tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting Thursday, March the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, March the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220, that's 220, Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, and the phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a meeting Thursday, March the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live, on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston. We thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week.